Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. Uh, I want to start out by thanking um, you all for the tremendous outpouring of love you guys gave for Pastor Appreciation Month. Um, I and the rest of the pastors just want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. So we were really, truly blessed by you guys. So thank you. Uh, this week, we're beginning a new series. It's a, it's a four-week series on, the, uh, on another Old Testament prophet, Malachi, uh, the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, in Hebrew, the name Malachi comes from a word meaning messenger. And so there are actually several messengers in the book of Malachi. There's, there's Malachi himself in his role as a prophet bringing a message from God. Uh, there's the priests talked about in the book who were meant to be God's messengers. And then we also learn of the coming of the ultimate messenger who's to come on the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. Um, and we'll talk about that uh, when we get to chapter four. So Malachi probably lived at the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah around 460 BC. Uh, it's about a century after the Jews have returned to their homeland after being exiled. And so by this point, many of them, um, frankly, had become complacent and uh, their worship of the Lord was definitely less than sincere. Um, in this book, the Lord's telling his covenant people to return to him with sincere worship. Uh, and he promises to bless and protect those who do so. So in order to set the stage for our discussion on Malachi, uh, we need to talk a little bit about covenants, covenants. So if you're married, you have some understanding of covenant because you, you entered into a marriage covenant with your spouse on the day of your wedding, right? You made vows to each other like in sickness and in health, and richer for poorer, uh, to love, to cherish, till death do you part, or something, something along those lines. Uh, in the book of Malachi, the Lord repeatedly refers to his covenant with Israel. From the opening words, he reminds them um, of their unfaithfulness to his covenantal love relationship with them. One of the first things the Lord says is, I have always loved you, says the Lord, right? Malachi 1-2. The book of Malachi literally starts off with the Lord saying, I have always loved you. It is a matter of fact. It is an absolute statement, right? It, I have loved you, not um, I've loved you except when you did this, or I've loved you but... Right? Simply, it is, I have always loved you. So this is unconditional love. It's also a, a reference to God's covenant with Israel. Um, it is also a reminder of Israel's unfaithfulness to that covenant. So I'm not talking about a love that is just a feeling. I'm talking about an expression of committed relationship that's demonstrated through a covenantal relationship. Um, we don't talk a lot about covenants these days, uh, but we should. Covenants are one of the most important themes in the Bible because they really act as, the, as like the backbone of, of the Bible. The entire redemptive story is built on these covenants. 
So from Genesis on, God uh, enters into one covenant after another uh, with various people in order to rescue mankind. Um, so let's start with this question. What, what is a covenant? Um, a covenant is a chosen relationship or a partnership in which two parties make binding promises um, to each other and to work together towards a common goal. Um, this type of relationship is very common throughout Scripture. There were personal covenants between two people. Think uh, David and Jonathan. Uh, there were political covenants between two kings or two nations. Right? There were certain types of covenants you used when the parties were of equal standing. There were other covenants you used when uh, they were of unequal standing. Covenants were central to the life of the ancient Near East. Right? So it makes sense that when God would reach out to mankind, he would do so using a structure that they were already familiar with, covenants. Uh, there are several covenants throughout Scripture, but there are five key ones, really, that form the backbone of the Bible. Um, and those are the ones that I'll be discussing this morning. Um, those covenants are the covenants that God made with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, uh, and then the new covenant inaugurated through Jesus. So I'm going to go through each of these. So the first is uh, the Noahic covenant, right? The, the covenant that God made with Noah. Okay, after the flood, God entered into a formal relationship with Noah and with every living creature, promising that despite humanity's evil, um, he would never again destroy them with the flood, right? And the sign of this covenant is what? The rainbow, right? Okay, so that is the Noahic covenant. Then there is the Abrahamic covenant. God enters into a covenant with Abraham uh, where God promises Abraham a huge family that will inherit a promised piece of land in Canaan um, and he will use that family to bring universal blessing to all humanity. Okay? The promises um, that God makes with Abraham are in this order. Offspring, land, and then universal blessing. Um, the sign of this covenant is circumcision, okay? Uh, next is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant God made um, with Israel through, through Moses. So God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt, um, and then he promises to make them a treasured possession, holy, set apart, uh, a set-apart nation, so he will dwell in their midst and he will bring them into the promised land. He will be their God and they will be his people. They will be a kingdom of priests who will mediate goodness and glory to all the nations. Right? The stipulations were that Israel was to obey the terms given in the, all the laws at Mount Sinai. Um, God promised to bring blessings if they followed his commands but curses if they disobeyed. And the sign of this covenant was the Sabbath. Okay, so that's three. 
I know it feels sort of like a Sunday school class this morning, but I'll get, I'll get through the covenants and then we'll, we'll dry, dive into Malachi. Okay, so then there's the Davidic covenant, David, right? God made a covenant through David. God would establish David as a king over Israel, um, and he promised to make his name great. He will give David a royal kingdom in which the promises made to Abraham and Jacob uh, will be fulfilled through the lineage of David. God promises to raise up a descendant through David's lineage who will build a house for the Lord and his throne and his kingdom will last forever. The stipulations are that David and his descendants have to remain faithful to God. Um, They have to walk in covenantal faithfulness and, and lead Israel in obedience to the covenantal laws. Finally, there is the new covenant. Um, The one, thank the Lord, that we live under today. Okay, the new covenant is the culmination of God's saving work uh, in his people. Jesus is the one who ushers in this covenant, and he is the fulfillment of all of the prophetic promises that we see in Scripture. The new covenant is an everlasting covenant um, between God and his people through Jesus Christ. In this new covenant, we get total forgiveness of sins, we get cleansing from shame, we get new hearts of flesh, and we get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? And as I said last week, under the new covenant, um, we have the ability now, through Christ, to be transformed ourselves and to be transformers of this world, all because of Jesus Christ, the perfect covenant keeper. Okay, so that's a brief overview of the covenants. Um, it's important to have some understanding of them as we dive into this, I- this, uh, this idea of sincere worship that we see in Malachi. So some of you know that uh, I'm, a, I'm a runner. Um, I started running when they closed all the gyms down in uh, March 2020. Like, I literally hadn't run before then. Like, I went to the gym and did other things, but I I didn't run. Um, But in March 2020, I started running, and I've been running since. Um, If you and I are Facebook friends, you know that I post my runs for accountability uh, on Facebook. It seems to work because uh, there have been times, like I come here on Sunday morning, and someone will say to me, "Uh, you, you didn't do your run. And that's the whole purpose of posting, right? So someone, you know, you guys will hold me accountable. So, so running, um, I know from experience, um, at first can be painful <laughs> uh, as your cardio, you know, your cardio is weak, your legs are weak, um, um, but uh, it's, it's not fun at first. You know, you're huffing, you're puffing. Um, your legs are sore, maybe you get like cramps in your sides, um, but eventually, if you stick to it, uh, those go away, and running can become enjoyable. So you may be familiar with uh, a famous runner, um, Eric Little, L-I-D-D-E-L-L. Uh, his story is portrayed in the 1981 movie, Chariots of Fire. So I'm not gonna show a clip from the movie, um, but there's a scene in the movie where Little tells his sister this. Um, He said, I believe God made me for a purpose, 
but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. So for little, uh, running was a way to worship God. Um, he was a devout believer. He was born in 1902 uh, to Scottish missionaries in China. Um, he went to Oxford, and while he was at Oxford, um, he became a runner. In 1924, he made the Olympic team, um, and then he set out to compete in Paris. His event, like the one he was best at, was the 100-yard dash. Um, but because the preliminary heats for that race were on a Sunday, um, little wasn't even there. He was in church preaching. Since he missed the preliminaries for the 100-yard dash, he decided uh, to run the 400-yard uh, dash instead. He, he was the world's best short-distance sprinter, um, but he was pretty average when it came to the 400. Um, but he still managed to qualify in the Olympic trials. So as Little was walking to the starting blocks for the 400, one of his teammates handed him a note um, with this scripture on it. It was 1 Samuel 2.30. It said, those who honor me, I will honor. So the race started and Little jumped out into the lead. Um, he ran an all-out sprint. Nobody could catch up with him. Um, he broke the tape, um, finishing way ahead of everybody else, and he broke the world record. This race was considered like one of the 50 greatest moments in track and field history. Little came back to uh, Britain as a, as a hero. Um, he was 22 at the time. Little then announced that he would be retiring from track, right, 22, He's retiring from track in order to become a missionary. Um, he, said, he said, I believe God made me for a purpose, for China. So he returned to the small village where his father had served, and he continued his missionary work there. Uh, when someone asked him if he regretted leaving all that fame and that glory behind, um, this is what he said. He said, it's natural for a chap to think over all that. It's natural for a chap to think over all that sometimes. But I'm glad I'm at the work I'm engaged in now. A fellow's life counts far more at this than the other. So Little served the Lord in China for over 20 years. Um, even when he was taken into a Japanese concentration camp during World War II. Five months before he would be liberated, um, he died of an inoperable brain tumor. Um, his last recorded words were, it's complete surrender. So in, his, in both his life as a runner and his life as a missionary, um, Little offered his life as a living sacrifice to God. He lived and he died in order to see the Lord's name be lifted up. He understood that what was most important in life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Ecclesiastes 3.11 
says, God has set eternity into our hearts. Romans 1 tells us that God has made himself known to every person through what he has made. Like all we have to do is go out and take a glimpse on a starry night um, and see the vastness of God's creation. I read the other day on NASA's website um, that there are supposedly um, in the center of the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy, um, somewhere between 10 million and a billion black holes. And that's just our galaxy. Like supposedly there's somewhere between two, uh, between 100 billion and 200 billion galaxies in the known universe. And think God is larger than all of that. Like he created all of that. Since the beginning of history, mankind has tried to figure out how to know God, how to please God. Uh, the famous author, A.W. Tozer, said, uh, man was made to worship God. Now, worship can be defined in a lot of different ways. Um, Webster's Dictionary calls it uh, a feeling of reverence and adoration towards a deity. That sounds... I don't even know what that sounds like. <laughs> it doesn't sound good. Uh, John Piper, uh, he says, worship is treasuring God above all things. I think that's close, closer. Um, but I would use Eric Little's definition. Worship is complete surrender. All right? So more than singing a song, more than showing up to a worship service, um, it is to give ourselves completely to him and to relentlessly pursue knowing him. Um, Paul said this in Philippians 3.8. He said, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In Exodus 33.13, it's on Mount Sinai, Moses prayed this. He said, if it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And then in Psalm 27, 4, David said, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the one thing I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. Worship is a life that prizes God above all else. Um, but when we look at our lives, sometimes we find uh, that we don't worship God the way we should. Like sometimes we get distracted, right? We get busy, we drift. Um, our passion can wane. We find other things taking precedence in our life. Before we know it, we didn't mean it to happen, but before we know it, we find we're just going through the motions. In Isaiah 29, 13, God says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And in Matthew 15, 9, Jesus added to this, saying the following. He said, 
They worship me in vain. So it's a scary thought, but it is possible to worship God in a way that causes him to close his ears, to turn his back, and to even reject the offerings that we're making. Um, And this is exactly what is happening here in this first chapter of the book of Malachi. The people of Israel were still coming to God. They were still offering sacrifices, but God was rejecting their worship. In fact, uh, in verse 10, uh, Malachi 1.10, it says, How I wish one of you would, would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will not accept your offerings. They had drifted so far that God hoped that someone would come and shut the temple doors and put out the fire and put an end to their sacrifices. God is upset with the people of Israel for being lethargic and for being uninterested in worship. One of the biggest things that we see here is this idea of spiritual apathy, um, where they stop caring. Other things have become more important. Um, this was pervasive through the book of Malachi. And sadly, um, honestly, it is pervasive in our time as well. Um, we all have been guilty of it at one time or another. We start seeing symptoms of spiritual apathy in our lives. Um, You know, at one time, maybe we burned brightly for the Lord. Um, But now, uh, no one would describe our lives as a complete surrender to the Lord. We find ourselves cruising, comfortable, and focused on lesser things. So, on that note, uh, I want to describe three traps that we find in this scripture, Malachi 1, three traps um, that we can fall into regarding worship. The first one is when we forget who God really is. So knowing who God is, is the starting point of all worship. Um, And we can learn a lot about God by seeing how he refers to himself. So each name that he uses for himself reveals a different uh, facet of his character. So in this first chapter of Malachi, we see there are several titles uh, that God uses for himself. Um, First, he calls himself both father and master. In verse 6, God says to the priests, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, Where the honor and respect I deserve, you have shown contempt for my name. So father and master. He he also says several times that he is the Lord of heaven's armies. Uh, Or in other translations, the Lord of hosts. So this name for God, Lord of heaven's armies, Lord of hosts, uh, is used over 300 times in the Old Testament. Um, It describes his rule over all the angels of heaven and over all the peoples of the earth, right? In Isaiah 6, it says 
that God sits on his throne and he is surrounded by seraphim who guard his holiness. Um, 1 Kings 22, 19 uh, expands this picture uh, by saying, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the armies of heaven around him, on his right and on his left. Psalm 103, 20 and 21 says, Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. Yes, praise the Lord, you armies of angels who serve him and do his will. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember that, when, when he was trying to protect Jesus, Peter pulled out a sword and he cut off a soldier's ear. Uh, and Jesus told him to put his sword away. Um, he said this, it's in Matthew 26, 53 and 54. He said, don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? So in verse 14 of this first chapter of Malachi, um, God also calls himself the great king. Um, At the end of verse 14, God says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and my name is feared among the nations. So there have been many rulers in this world, right? Each had a certain amount of power, each had a certain amount of influence, right? But every king, every pharaoh, every monarch, every dictator, every emperor, every prime minister, every president pales in comparison to the great king, God, right? He is father and master. He is the Lord of the heaven's armies, and he is the great king who is worthy of worship. But not only is his name great, but God is love. Um, Here in Malachi, as he's done all throughout the Old Testament, um, God once again declares his covenant love to an undeserving people. Um, I think Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 9, describes this covenant love well. It'll be up there. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you, and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. So again, the first trap that we can fall into regarding worship is forgetting who God is. Um, The second is when we're just going through the motions. So we see throughout this passage that Israel's worship of God um, had declined to the point where it was just becoming routine. It wasn't from the heart. It was sort of like a, a tire with a slow leak. 
right? Unless you consistently check it, uh, you don't notice it until one day it's like, thum, 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 right? Um, there are two groups of people who are identified in this chapter, this first chapter of Malachi, who are just going through the motions of worship. First are the priests. Um, God had given very explicit instructions to the priests in Leviticus, Leviticus 22, 21, chapter 22, verses 21 and 22. It says, if you present a peace offering to the Lord from the herd or the flock, whether it is to fulfill a vow or as a voluntary offering, you must offer a perfect animal. It may have no defect of any kind. You must not offer an animal that is blind, crippled, or injured, or that has a wart, a skin sore, or scabs. Such animals must never be offered on the altar as special gifts to the Lord. Now, Malachi 1, we, we don't see the priest doing a good job, right? Um, verse 7 says, You have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Verse 8 says, when you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord's of heaven, Lord of heaven's armies. Verse 12 says, but you dishonor my name with your actions by bringing contemptible food. You're saying it's all right to defile the Lord's table. And verse 13 says, you say it's too hard to serve the Lord and you turn up your noses at my command, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Think of it. Animals that are stolen and crippled and sick are being presented as offerings. Should I accept from you such offerings as these, asks the Lord. And then God says in verse 10, I am not pleased with you and I will not accept your offerings. So in essence, uh, their love had grown cold. Um, but the blame does not, does not rest on just the priests, right? The people are guilty too. Um, the priests were offering animals that were blind, that were lame, that were sick. Um, but where were these animals coming from, right? Who's bringing them to the priests? It's the people. Um, so unfortunately, it is all too common of an experience um, for us to grow cold in our faith. You know, again, maybe when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, your uh, faith burned brightly, but now maybe not so much. Um, maybe our worship just feels like we're going through the motions. And I'm talking about every aspect of our worship, right? Singing, giving, praying, um, inviting God's presence into our everyday lives, like, like living a lifestyle of worship. We get busy, our calendars get full, our responsibilities overwhelm us. You remember the story of uh, Mary and Martha in Luke 10? Um, it says, Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what Jesus taught, but Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. 
The Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you're worried and upset over all these details, but there's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. So maybe it's not that you're overwhelmed with responsibilities. Uh, Maybe it's that you're distracted. We all get distracted, right? Every day we are um, hit with a barrage of dings and beeps and notifications and uh, from emails and social media and text messages. Um, There is no silence, there is no solitude, there is no rest. Um, We're like a computer that has ground to a halt because there are too many tabs and programs open. Can you relate? Right? Uh, We need to not only reboot, um, but we need to go through and delete programs that we don't use anymore. Right? Programs that distract. Uh, We need to clear the slate. We need to clear the mind. We need to sit in silence, and we need to return to our first love. You may recall um, God's complaint against the church of Ephesus in uh, Revelation 2. That's in verses 4 and 5. It says, I have this this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. So not only uh, do we forget who God is, um, or we end up just going through the motions of worship. Those are the first two traps we fall into. Um, But the third trap we can fall into regarding worship is we lose sight of the big picture. The big picture. So look at verse 11. It says, but my name is honored by people of other nations from morning till night. All around the world they offer sweet incense and pure offerings in honor of my name. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So when we look at this, like to a Jewish audience, this doesn't make sense. Right? Offerings in every place, like offered at all times, among all the nations. The law of God uh, specifies that there is only one location in which the offerings can be made, right? Where? In the temple in Jerusalem. And only on specific days, at specific times, only by specific individuals, right? Priests who were born into the tribe of Levi. But verse 11 says that worship of God will be unlimited. It will be offered from morning till night and will happen in every place across every nation. Even among those outside of Israel, even among the Gentile nations who are the enemies of God. So what's with that? So this is a promise. Right? It is a prophetic word pointing to a future reality, a reality uh, which is in two parts. First, 400 years after Malachi was written, um, there was a baby born in Bethlehem, Jesus, 
right? In his birth, in his life, in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, Jesus conquered sin, death, and the enemy, and he ushered in the kingdom of God. The kingdom has arrived. You've heard me say this. The kingdom has arrived, but wouldn't be here, won't be here until Jesus comes again. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but has yet to be consummated. So it's interesting. Uh, One day, while sitting by uh, a well outside a small Samaritan village, a woman asked Jesus about worship. Is it acceptable to worship God outside of Jerusalem? Remember this? Um, she, says, she says it in John 4.20. She says, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? It's a legitimate question. Um, as we've seen, Jerusalem was the only place God said that they should worship. But look at Jesus' response in the next verse. It says, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Worship was never about a physical location. It was never about a building. It's always been about the heart. Worship is about completely surrendering oneself to God. Malachi is not just looking to when Jesus will inaugurate his kingdom He's also looking to when Jesus will consummate his kingdom, the second coming of Christ, right? It's a time when Jesus will be worshiped by all people in all places at all times. And we see a good picture of that in Revelation 7, right? It says, uh, verses 9 through 12, after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living beings and they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshiped God. They sang, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. So talk about a big picture. Um, This is where it's all headed. Um, Where we will be with Jesus and where we will worship him forever. But in the meantime... Right? We sometimes forget who God is, or we sometimes find ourselves going through the motions, or we sometimes lose sight of the big picture. Our worship ends up being dishonoring to the heart of God. Now, none of us gets it right all the time, right? And it's important to remember um, we don't come to worship based on our own goodness or our own efforts. We come as those who have been declared right by God 
because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. We worship because of what he has done, not because of what we have done. Amen? Right? So my prayer is that we would begin to take just a few steps towards a complete surrender to the Lord, our master, our great king, the Lord of heaven's armies, and the one who absolutely loves you and me and is the faithful covenant keeper. Let's pray. Lord, you are the faithful covenant keeper. And you've loved us and been so gracious and merciful and patient with us. Holy Spirit, give us the ability to worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in complete surrender. Jesus, I pray that we'd be more like Mary sitting at your feet. Like you said to Martha, there's only one thing worth being concerned about, and it's you. Pray, Lord, that you would be our everything. Lord, help us to grow in worship and surrender to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.